Please take your Bibles with me once more to the book of Leviticus. We come this morning to Leviticus chapter 23, and as we do, we are reminded once again that the book of Leviticus is in many ways a book of repetition. And when we understand that Leviticus is a book of repetition, we should also understand that it is so because we need it to be so. We are a people who need to be told over and over and over again. Because the Lord calls us sheep. And sheep are not very bright. So there is a reason for this. In addition to simply our density of mind, when the same truths are repeated over and over again in the book of Leviticus, they are repeated for various reasons. It's not always exactly the same thing. As we come to Leviticus 23, we're reminded once again that in the Old Covenant period, God gave to his people a sacred calendar. There are days and weeks which are to be set aside for specific purposes. And God's sacred calendar carried the message that God's people live in constant contact with God and order their lives around his worship. God commanded his people to reserve every seventh day to worship him. And he designed the entire calendar as a reminder of the sacredness of the seventh day. You see that right here in verse 3. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, this is a good example of what we've been talking about. We've been seeing teaching concerning the Sabbath since well back into the book of Leviticus. And God feels the need to repeat himself over and over and over again. This idea that there is a day which is to be set apart for his worship seems to be very, very important. As we come into the new covenant, we see much the same thing. The Sabbath, we find in Hebrews chapter 4 and elsewhere, the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. So we don't have a Sabbath in the same way Old Covenant Israel had a Sabbath. And yet, there is still an emphasis on one day out of the week in which God's people are to come together in corporate worship. The New Testament refers to it as the Lord's Day. And we are commanded in Hebrews chapter 10 not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I would love to go off on that. 
but I'd be preaching to the choir because you're here. But under the Old Covenant, God gave seven festivals during the year. And they've already been laid out for us. There are festivals that lasted more than a day. Some of them lasted seven days. And this, this rather elaborate system of festivals and years underscored that God is sovereign even over the calendar of his people. As God, he has the authority in our lives to plan when we will worship And in worshiping, when God declares it, we are submitting to him as God. So as we come through Leviticus chapter 23 this morning, I want to just take you through first each of those festivals, each of those Old Covenant celebrations which God has established, just remind us of what they are about. And then we're going to come back and we're going to see how each one of those festivals points to Jesus Christ. We've already spoken about the Sabbath, so I'm going to pick up with verse 4 and 5 and the Passover. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now you'll remember that Passover celebrated God delivering Israel from death. And he told his people that they were to commemorate that event in the first month on the fourteenth day of the month. The Passover festival originally uh, originated, I should say, in Egypt. You'll remember that God sent ten plagues on Egypt to deliver his people from bondage. The last plague was the death of the firstborn. And when God sent that final plague, he told his people to eat a special meal together. It came to be called the Passover meal. And that meal included a Passover lamb. And God said, whoever would take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of their home, they would be safe from the plague of death. And so Hebrew slaves put the blood on the doorposts, and God delivered them from death. And God told his people to share that meal together on the same night every year in perpetuity, in order to remember God's deliverance. In verses 6 through 8, we see the festival of unleavened bread celebrating God's delivery from slavery. Then, on the 15th day of the same month, so the day after Passover, that's going to be significant. We're going to come back to that. On the 15th day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. 
you shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So God instituted the festival of unleavened bread just as his people were about to depart from Egypt. And the bread was unleavened, of course, because they were in a hurry to get going. They had, at least at that moment, had enough of Egypt. Later, of course, because of their sin, they would want to go back to Egypt. But right now, they want to leave. And so God gives them this feast of unleavened bread. Don't add leaven, don't add yeast to the dough. Don't wait for it to rise. Just get it cooked because you need to get out. And God told them to observe the seven-day feast of unleavened bread every year. He also told them to say to one another during that festival that God had brought them out of Egypt with a strong hand. And so this festival was a celebration, a celebration of God's deliverance from bondage. In 9 through 14, we find the festival of first fruits. And this celebrated God's gift of the coming harvest. So we pick up in verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb one year old without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma with its drink offering a fourth of a hin of wine. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. So this is something that is to be celebrated when the harvest begins. During the festival of unleavened bread, the people took the first of the harvest that had ripened, waved it before the Lord in thanks, and gave an offering to the Lord as an expression for the, for, of gratitude for the harvest which was to come. That ceremony was the festival of the first fruits, and the people observed it during the festival of unleavened bread. Since the festival of unleavened bread lasted for a week, a Sabbath day or a Saturday would have been during that week. The festival of the first fruits was observed on the day after that Sabbath, which would be a Sunday which will also be significant. The festival of the weeks comes next, or the festival of Pentecost, 
You see that in verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, and there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord, and their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering by fire to a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. On this same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is a, to be a perpetual statute for you in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest, you are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord, your God. Seven weeks is 49 days after the festival of the first fruits. The next day was called the festival of weeks. It's not specifically named here in Leviticus 23, although it's described. The festival of weeks is also what we know as the festival of Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50. Penta. And Pentecost was 50 days after the festival of first fruits. It was at the end of the harvest. And the purpose of Pentecost was to celebrate God's gift of the harvest that the people had gathered in by that time. Verses 23 through 25, you have the festival of trumpets to signal the coming of the new year. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, the timing of the new year in the Old Covenant period seems pretty strange to most of us. For us, New Year's falls on January 1st. God's people in the Old Covenant period celebrated a religious new year on the first day of the month of Nisan in the spring. And a civil new year on the first day of the month of Tishri in the fall. God refers to the civil new year in verses 23 to 25. The new year was signaled by the blowing of trumpets to gather the people and by presenting an offering to the Lord. 
Note that God said the celebration of the new year was to focus on Him. In the ancient Near East, all kinds of superstitions and revelries were associated with the new year. It was very much like it is today for us. But God told His people that He was to be worshipped on New Year's Day. Now, many Christians observe a tradition of celebrating by praying as each new year dawns. It's a wonderful way to begin a new year. Wonderful way to put into practice the principle which we find here. Recognizing that the past year was a gift from God, and so is the year to come. And that it belongs to Him. The next celebration came ten days after the Festival of Trumpets. It is the Day of Atonement, which celebrated God taking away sin. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 26 and 27, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls. On the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, the 16th chapter of Leviticus is devoted exclusively to the Day of Atonement. And now God again commands the Day of Atonement to be observed in chapter 23. And since our brother Joe dealt with chapter 16 in great detail, we're not going to say too much about it here, except to mention that the Day of Atonement portrays God's taking away the sins of the people and the sins of the high priest. This Day of Atonement was on the 10th day of the 7th month. On the 15th day of the seventh month is the festival of booths or tabernacles. And you see that picking up with verse 33. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of the seventh month is the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. 
besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive and free will offerings which you give to the Lord. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, is referring to these temporary shelters which the people were commanded to live in in order to remember that they had lived in the wilderness for 40 years and God had provided for them throughout that entire period. So that's Leviticus 23. Now as we've been asking throughout our study of Leviticus, what does all this have to do with us? Why should we care about festivals that we no longer celebrate? Let me give you two reasons. First, this information is important because it's in the Bible. That should be all we need. It is the Word of God. And God has said that every jot and tittle of His Word is profitable for us. But how is it profitable? The Old Covenant festivals are important because of what God did in salvation history during those festivals and how that salvation history relates to us. The entire Bible is the story of redemption, and it all connects. There is a thread of God's grace and God's sovereignty and God's power from beginning to end. And everything that we find in the Old Testament, whether or not it directly commands us to continue the practice, it all is applicable to us. It all is fulfilled in us because it's all fulfilled in Christ and we are in union with Christ. So let's see how all of this fits together. Amazingly, God timed the most important events in Jesus' saving work to coincide with the festivals that he had commanded his people to observe over 1,400 years earlier. In the Passover, we see Jesus, our Passover lamb. Of the 365 days that God could have chosen for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God arranged for him to be crucified 
by the act of wicked men on the Friday afternoon when the lambs were killed in preparation for the festival of Passover. God was teaching a lesson. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Just as God delivered the Hebrew slaves from, in, in Egypt from death when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, God also delivers every person from eternal death when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the one who shed his blood for our sin. The preaching of the apostles <clears throat> communicated that message verbally as does the entire New Testament. The timing God arranged for the death of Jesus communicates that message symbolically. The providential calendar correspondence between the Testaments is so clear that Gordon Wenham wrote, nowhere is the continuity between the Testaments so clear as in the calendar." God arranged for Jesus, the Son of God and the Lamb of God, to be killed at the time of the Passover to fulfill that part of his old covenant command. The timing of the death of Jesus is nothing short of a divine miracle and demonstrates that God is sovereign over time. In the festival of unleavened bread, we see that Jesus delivers us from slavery. The festival of unleavened bread comm commemorated God's deliverance of his people from slavery. Jesus delivers from slavery all who will put their faith in him. In John chapter 8, Jesus said this, Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, but if the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we're told that Jesus has set us free from our sin by his blood. Jesus delivers us from slavery to sin and self and the devil, and in doing so, he fulfills the festival of unleavened bread. In the festival of the first fruits, we see that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. During the week of the festival of unleavened bread, a Sabbath would have occurred. The Sabbath was a Saturday. The next day would be Sunday. When Jesus was crucified at the beginning of the Passover, the day of Passover, the 14th of Nisan, It was also a Sabbath, a Saturday. The next day was Sunday. At the beginning of the festival of unleavened bread, and in the case of the year Jesus was crucified, that Sunday was also the festival of first fruits because it was the day after a Sabbath during the festival of unleavened bread. That Sunday was the festival of first fruits, and it was the day when Jesus was resurrected. During the festival of first fruits, the Jews thanked God for the first fruits and the coming harvest. Jesus rose from the dead on that day. He was the first to rise from the dead. 
So Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, refers to Jesus as what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus rose from the dead, and all those who put their faith in him will also rise to eternal life. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have the promise of our own resurrection, but Jesus was the first. He is the promise of what is to come. We are the harvest that comes after him. In the timing of Jesus' death and resurrection, God has given us physical, historical illustration of what he has done in Jesus. We've said that the sacrificial system described in Leviticus is preparatory and pedagogical, right? It's to teach. The Old Covenant sacrifices, in other words, prepared the world were the sacrifice of Jesus, and they taught the meaning of his sacrifice. The festivals of the Old Covenant period were also preparatory, pedagogical. They prepared the world for what God did in Jesus, and they taught the meaning of what he did. He is our Passover lamb. He delivers us from slavery as God delivered the Hebrews. He rose from the grave as the first fruits of all the people who, having put their faith in him, will also be resurrected. After this, 50 days after the festival of first fruits, you have the festival of Pentecost occurring. And in the festival of Pentecost, we see Jesus gives the harvest. Pentecost was a harvest festival. How did Jesus fulfill that? On the Pentecost, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, was there a harvest? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. You find it recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. That day, 3,000 people were added to the church. There's the harvest. Those new Christians were the harvested fruit of the continuing ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It was a harvest of souls. The church father Chrysostom made this connection explicit. He wrote, what is this Pentecost? The time when the sickle was to be put to the harvest and the ingathering was made. God's Spirit reaped a harvest on the day God had chosen over 1,400 years earlier as a celebration of the harvest. On the day of Pentecost, the sickle of the Holy Spirit came down and reaped a harvest of souls. And that harvest continues to this day. In the festival of trumpets, we see trumpets signaling Jesus' coming. The festival of trumpets was the New Year festival. Today, Jewish people refer to it as Rosh Hashanah. The trumpets heralded the New Year. In the Old Covenant period, leaders used trumpets to call God's people together. You remember the phrase throughout chapter 23, this is a holy convocation. 
The people are gathered together. They were gathered together for the new year. They were gathered together for battle. They were gathered together for worship. The New Testament says that one day God will order trumpets to be blown, which will herald the arrival of Jesus and the gathering, the convocation of God's people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 tells us that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. When Jesus returns, he will call out a command an archangel will speak and a trumpet will sound. Those of you who have been with us Wednesday nights in our study of Revelation know that in Revelation we read about God's judgment during the end of this age and those judgments are preceded by the blasts of trumpets which also precede the coming of Christ. God gave the festival of trumpets to foreshadow the truth that a new day is coming. As early as the Garden of Eden, God promised to send the seed of the woman to bruise, to crush the head of the serpent. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeated his promise to send a Messiah who would do that head crushing. God's people have anticipated the coming of the Messiah who would crush evil and the evil one. And when the trumpet sounded at every New Year celebration, they knew they were one step closer, one year closer to the arrival of the Messiah. And God says that the day is yet coming when the trumpet will sound and Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout. And we have the Day of Atonement. And we see there, of course, that Jesus is the one who takes away sin. God gave the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, to provide ceremonies that symbolize the removal of sin. The writer of Hebrews referred to the Day of Atonement in order to show how Jesus has fulfilled that day and superseded that day. Hebrews 8.6 says that Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. Hebrews 9 calls Jesus the high priest who enters into the most holy place. But he did not enter into the earthly tabernacle, but we're told he entered into the greater, more perfect tabernacle, the tabernacle not made with hands, the tabernacle that is in heaven itself. So Jesus made his sacrifice before God the Father and presented himself to the Father as that offering which truly does take away sin. It does that which sheep and goats and oxen could not. Jesus offered this sacrifice not year after year after year, as the Old Testament festival did, but once, once for 
all. And Jesus did not offer the blood of animals, but his own precious blood as the sacrifice. And because of all of this, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, a better covenant. Jesus fulfills the day of atonement because he takes our sin away. He is our scapegoat. Our sin was placed upon him, and he went outside the gates to be crucified as a sacrifice for our sin. In the festival of booths or tabernacles, we see that Jesus provides for us. The festival of booths was the last on the sacred calendar. This festival commemorated God's provision during all of the hardships of the Jews' 40-year wilderness wandering. What does the New Testament tell us about Jesus? Philippians 4.19 tells us that God will supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. No matter what we go through, no matter what wilderness experience we may have to endure, Jesus provides every need. In the New Covenant age, we don't observe the festival of booths. We don't construct little huts and live in them for a week. But we do gather each week to give thanks and praise to Jesus who provides our salvation and meets every need that we have. That's what we do every time we come together in this place. It's what we do today. God communicated powerful truths in the Old Covenant calendar and in its fulfillment in Jesus. And the way we live ought to be changed because of these truths. How should we live differently in light of what we see in Leviticus 23 and its fulfillment in the New Testament? Let me just lay out a few things for you. We should seek the presence of God. Going into the presence of God was the purpose of the festival days. God established times when his people would formally come, formally come into his presence. They were high days. They were holy days. They were not the only times God wanted to come to him, but they were special. And he ordered the calendar so all year long they would never forget to come into the presence of God. They communicated a message that every season, every experience during the year, every emotion is all to be directed to God. All of life relates to Him. Our finances, the harvest, it's all His provision. And we are called to acknowledge that and to give thanks. We do that when we gather here and we we give an, an offering. We give back to God what He has provided for us. We're acknowledging that. When we think about the good times in the past and those good times as God's blessing upon our lives, we give praise to Him. 
So when a new year rolls around, we go into His presence and we commit that year to Him, knowing that He is our Lord and He controls everything about our lives. And He does it for our good. We go to Him to confess and to receive forgiveness and cleansing. God ordered the calendar of His people around fellowship with Him. And He still does. Which is why He tells us, don't do it. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. There is nothing more important than gathering together in this place on the Lord's Day. We celebrate God and His salvation. We seek God's presence and we celebrate. You know, God is not opposed to celebration. He instituted feasts and festivals Jesus went to at least one wedding that we know of. He shared meals with people. He said the kingdom of God is like a feast. And God invites us through these festivals to celebrate and to celebrate Him. He is to be our greatest joy. And we acknowledge that He is the source of all other joys as well. Since God made us to celebrate, since God ordered the calendar of his people around celebration, since God is our greatest reason to celebrate, and since every other reason to celebrate comes from God, why wouldn't we celebrate him and his salvation? The sacred calendar of the Old Covenant says that knowing God is good. Life's blessings come from him. Going into his presence is a feast. When we gather together on the Lord's Day, what are we doing? We are celebrating God and His salvation and all of His gifts. Because of all these things, we ought to be sharing those gifts. First with God, but also with others. Prominent part of the festivals of the Old Covenant was giving offerings to God and sharing meals with other people. Verse 22 mentions sharing with the poor and the foreigner. The New Testament has so much to say about our gifts to God and our generosity to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, We are not to give reluctantly or out of necessity, that is, out of duty, because God loves a cheerful giver. We give with open hands and open heart. At least we ought to. All of this should be a reminder as well that we are to submit to God's sovereignty over our time. Sacred calendar of the Old Covenant communicated the message that God is the master of time. Through the centuries, Jewish children would ask their parents, why are we going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread? And their parents would say, because God told us to go to this festival during this week and throughout the year we do what he tells us to do. 
God's fulfillment of the sacred calendar in Jesus shows us that he controls time. The great theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And to paraphrase Kuyper, there is not a split second in all of our existence over which Christ does not claim ownership. He is sovereign over time. The only question is, do we submit to his lordship over the time in our lives? As mentioned in verse 3, God told his people that the Sabbath day was a day of rest and that it was a holy day. That principle of setting aside a day of rest and worship is still in effect in this new covenant age. The New Testament tells us to gather together for worship and fellowship on the Lord's day. When our time, our schedules are submitted to His Lordship, that is what we will do. And frankly, I've got to say I am alarmed at how often people approach me and say they won't be in church on Sunday because this reason, that reason, the other reason. We have a lot to do. We're busy people. That's the way we excuse our failure to submit to God's sovereignty over our time. When we gather with God's people every week to celebrate our relationship with Him, we are submitting to His rightful sovereignty over our schedule. And when we decide that there is something else that takes priority on the Lord's day, we are saying the opposite. We're saying that we reject God's sovereignty over the time of our lives. We're saying that we will be our own sovereign, our own king. I'll make my own schedule, thank you very much. When the Jews and the Romans colluded to put Jesus to death, they thought they were in charge of Jesus' fate. They had positions of authority that made them appear to be the masters of that time and place. And they were responsible for Jesus' death. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he told the people that he was speaking to that you crucified him by the hands of lawless men who nailed him to the cross and killed him. But in his providential sovereignty, God was behind what they could see. God was coordinating everything. He was guiding all the decisions and all the events in connection with the death of Jesus. So, as Peter put it, he was delivered up according to the predetermined plan of God. The authorities thought that the decision to kill Jesus on the afternoon beginning Passover was solely their decision. But over 1,400 years before that day, when God's people were still slaves in Egypt, God told them to kill a lamb and put its blood over their doors, and he would save them from death. 
And when God told them that, he knew that 1,400 years later to the hour, he would arrange the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If God can arrange history to the hour from over a thousand years away, don't you think he can be trusted to schedule your life? Don't you think he knows better than you do? What is best for us? Don't you think he has a reason for commanding his people to gather together on the Lord's day? And don't you think that reason is good? It's for our good and for his glory. May we submit to his lordship over the days and the hours and the moments of our lives. May we make him the focal point of our celebration and acknowledge him and devote to him every moment, every hour, every year for as long as he gives us life. Father, make it so. Father, we need our hearts to be changed. We need hearts that submit to your sovereignty with joy and with expectation. Father, we need hearts that despise self. Only you can do this, Father. Only you can make us what we need to be. Only you can put within us that desire to please you in all things, even with the very moments of our lives. Oh, do it, Father. Give us such a love for you that we see every aspect of our lives as yours. And we will thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Would you stand with me as we...